James chapter number two, speaking of music, we're going to digress when it comes to music. We're going to go to children's church for a second. Now, they don't have room for all of us to go upstairs today, so we're going to have children's church down here for a moment. And here's the only rule. You can't be too cool for Sunday school. All right. And so I've got I've got spies watching. If you don't do what I'm asking you to do, then you're going to get hit in the back of the head with something. Okay. There's a song I grew up singing in children's church called If You're Saved and You Know It. You ready? Y'all better put down your Bibles. You can't hold your Bible and then use that as an excuse. Ready? If you don't know it, then you'll catch on. Okay. If you're saved and you know it, clap your hands. If you're saved and you know it, clap your hands. If you're saved and you know it, then your life will surely show it. If you're saved and you know it, clap your hands. If you're saved and you know it, stomp your feet. If you're saved and you know it, stomp your feet. If you're saved and you know it, then your life will surely show it. If you're saved and you know it, stomp your feet. If you're saved and you know it, say amen. Amen. That's pathetic. (laughs) Come on now, is this a graveyard? If you're saved and you know it, say amen. Amen. If you're saved and you know it, say amen. Amen. If you're saved and you know it, then your life will surely show it. If you're saved and you know it, say amen. Amen. If you're saved and you know it, do all three. If you're saved and you know it, do all three. If you're saved and you know it, then your life will surely show it. If you're saved and you know it, do all three. Give yourself a hand. That's amazing. That's the most fun some of y'all had in church your whole life. Sometimes as I was growing up singing that song, I got so carried away with the clapping and the stomping and the shouting amen because I wanted to be louder than the girls. I got so carried away that I overlooked the punchline of the song. If you're saved and you know it, then your life will surely show it. In other words, true salvation leads to obedient living. That's not popular preaching in the modern church today. Reminds me of a cartoon that I read recently by Kent Hughes, a commentator that I study after. It pictured a conventional looking church with a large billboard in the foreground advertising its ministry. And the sign read this, the light church. 24% fewer commitments, home with a 5% tithe, 15 minute sermons and 45 minute worship services. We have only eight commandments, your choice. We use just three spiritual laws, everything you've wanted in a church and less. It's meant to be a joke, but sadly, it's all but true for so many in the modern church today. No quickening of the conscience, no changing of the heart, no commitment of one's life, no real faith, just a light. This was James's concern millennia ago because it was just as likely then as today for church attenders to slide along with a bogus faith that made no real difference in the way they lived their lives. 
James is going to make an argument today that light faith is actually dead faith. In fact, James makes his main point of our text very clear by repeating the same thing three separate times in the course of his argument. Verse 17 of James 2. Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. Drop down to verse 20. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Verse 26. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. The point that James is making is a strong one. Faith without works is dead. Ultimately, this passage asks a very important question of all of us today. And it's this. Is your faith real? The text is meant to speak to those today who profess faith in God, but whose life doesn't express faith in God. I want to be clear. I by no means desire to confuse anyone in here about their salvation today. I'm not intentionally trying to cast doubt on the validity of your relationship with Christ and neither is James. But at the same time, the text does show us the possibility that exists in every church. And that is to have some in attendance who think they're saved, but have never truly been saved. They're under the illusion that their faith is alive when in all actuality their faith is dead. So this text is very serious today. It's dealing with our eternity. So, so I want to be careful as I preach it. I don't want to preach it too strong and I don't want to preach it too soft. I, I want to be clear with you today that salvation is, is, is when you place your faith in Jesus Christ alone. That's it. But at the same time, I don't want to be so soft that I fail to argue against the salvation that has never led to an obedient life. So to help us walk through this text carefully, I've kind of broken it up into three parts in the form of three questions. Is your faith just an empty claim? Question one. Is your faith just a religious creed? Question two. And ultimately, is your faith leading to an obedient life? Look at the first section of the text, verses 14 through 18. What what doth it profit, my brethren... Though a man say he hath faith and hath not works, can faith or that kind of faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food. Now, now when it says naked, it means that they wouldn't have their outer garment that they would normally wear in cold weather. Just an inner garment. So they're not talking about they have no clothes at all. They just, they aren't properly equipped to endure the cold weather. Verse 16, and one of you say unto them, depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not those things that are needful to the body. What doth it profit? Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. I want you to notice in verse 14, verse 16, and verse 18, a common word. And it's the word say. Verse 14, what doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he have faith? 16, and one of you say unto them. Verse 18, yea, a man say. 
Here's the first question. Is my faith just an empty claim? James is talking here about somebody that says they're saved. Someone that claims to have faith, but whose claim is empty because it's not backed up with good works. He asked two questions in verse number 14. They both go hand in hand. He asked number one, what does it profit a man who says he has faith but has no works? Then he follows up that question by asking this in essence, can that kind of faith, a a workless faith, can that really save that man? In other words, if the version of faith in Christ that you say you have is one that does not produce good works for Christ, it may indeed not be real saving faith at all. Now to help him illustrate that, he used this hypothetical situation of someone who claims to be a Christian and then that Christian comes across another believer who is poor. That poor believer is struggling to have enough food to be properly nourished or have enough clothing to be worn in the winter. And so James imagines that as this Christian encounters the poor believer, he sees him shivering in the cold. He can clearly see that he hasn't eaten a good meal in days. And so this good Christian stops by, pats his poor fellow believer on the back and says something like this. Sir, peace be with you. Peace be with you, my brother. I hope you stay warm today. Hope you can find a good, good meal today. Okay, God bless. See ya. Then he goes on his way. James is asking, what difference did that Christian's words make in the life of a poor man? He made a claim that he wanted him to experience peace. He made a claim that he wanted him to be fed. He made a claim that he wanted him to be warm, but he did nothing about it. His works did not back up his words. Therefore, James is making this point. His claim is empty. It's useless. His words made no difference because they weren't backed up by works in the same way. Someone who claims to have placed their faith in Christ, yet their works do not back up their words. That person's faith profits them nothing. You could say it this way. A workless faith is a worthless faith. See, church, we live in a society where we've become increasingly more comfortable with disconnecting what we say we believe and how we live our lives. There seems to be more Christian talk today than Christian walk. How many have ever read the book Pilgrim's Progress? Raise your hands if you if you read that allegory. Okay, it's about a man named Christian. He's leaving this city of destruction. He's on his way to the celestial city. It's about his journey to heaven. And on his journey, he encounters these many different characters. And these characters all represent different aspects of the Christian life. One of the uh, characters that Christian encounters on his journey is someone by the name of Talkative. What he says about Talkative is this, I quote, his religion is only in his tongue. He talks and he talks and he talks, but he doesn't walk or walk or walk. Can I ask you today, is your religion more in your tongue than in your life? Is it more about what you say than what you actually do? See, James is trying to get us to evaluate our faith, not by what we say, but by how we live. James goes on in the next verse, in verse 18, and he imagines this This objector, this 
This man, maybe, that is reading his writing or hearing him argue this point, he imagines this guy standing up and saying, hold on a second, James, you can see it there. He says, thou hast faith and I have works. He's saying, you're putting these two things together. And I know they're both important, but when it comes to eternal life, they're not supposed to be in the same sentence, are they? And he kind of has a good objection because as, as we read like the Apostle Paul, for instance, don't we read so often how the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is very passionate about telling us that we are saved by faith in Christ alone, not by good works? So maybe if I'm preaching this, you would have the same objection. Wait, pastor. You've always taught us that we don't get saved by doing good works. We get saved by faith alone in Christ. Which one is it? Is it the apostle Paul or is it James? Well, short answer is it's both. The apostle Paul does say in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works. Lest any man should boast, at at, at first glance, it seems like Paul's right and James is wrong. But we never seem to read verse 10 of Ephesians 2. It says, for we are his workmanship, created in Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So, So really, Paul and James agree, we're not saved by our good works, we're saved by our faith in Christ alone, but good works are always the result of being truly saved. Does that make sense? There's two extremes to avoid here, and I want to be clear today. Here's one extreme, it says, faith plus works equals salvation. This is the thinking that that works are so attached to faith that you got to do some sort of good deeds in order to earn God's favor. That's what the Apostle Paul was combating with those he was influencing um, with these Ephesian believers. He was he was influencing these folks that were being taught that 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 they had to be circumcised to to be saved. It was a, a, a. uh, a Jewish custom, or, or they had to observe or adhere to other Mosaic laws in order to, to be saved. In our day, it's not those two issues. In our day, it's people that are teaching folks that they have to get baptized to go to heaven, or they have to fulfill communion to go to heaven, or they have to take a certain amount of classes, or they've got to confess their sins to a priest on a regular basis. Hear me, church, that's false teaching. I say that compassionately, but unapologetically. That's false. But, but in our effort to stay away from the works-based salvation extreme, we tend to go to another extreme. And it's this one, faith minus works equals salvation. This is what James is combating. Okay, The thinking that salvation is just professing a belief in Christ, and that's it. The thinking that once you pray and, quote, ask Jesus into your heart, then you're good to go on your way. You got your get out of hell free card. Collect $200 and pass go. That's false teaching. Here's a better way to look at it. It's not faith plus works that says. It's not faith minus works that says. Here it is. Salvation equals faith that works. Meaning you are saved by faith alone, but your faith never stands alone. Real faith is always accompanied by good works. Now, you don't do good works to be saved, but when you truly trust in Christ, you will inevitably grow to a point where good works will come out. That's the first question we have to answer. In order to evaluate the authenticity of our faith, is my faith just an empty claim 
Do I profess, just profess my faith in Christ or do I really possess a faith in Christ? Now James continues his argument in verses 19 and 20. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Here's the second question you need to ask of your faith this morning. Is my faith just a religious creed? A creed is a religious or or traditional belief. It's a set of doctrines that you affirm as true. I want you to hear me. There's nothing wrong with a creed. There's nothing wrong with a set of doctrinal beliefs. In fact, you have to assent to the creed that Jesus has come in the flesh to die for your sins or you can't be saved. Creeds are good. They're necessary to know. However, James' point here is that just a creed alone can't save you. Just a mental assent to a truth that's found in the Bible can't save you. The devil and his demons had faith in a creed. They believed there was one God. The devils believed that Jesus was the son of God. They called him by that name in the gospels. The devils believe in the presence of heaven and hell. Here's the truth. The devil and his demons probably know more theology than we do. But here's the kicker. Though they believe the right things, they still rebel against God. That's why James says they believe and tremble. They know Jesus is the son of God, but they shudder at the thought of actually making him the Lord of their life. See, mentally assenting to the right creed doesn't make anyone a true Christian. Knowing what is true about God doesn't automatically make someone a child of God. I read a humorous parable about Duckland borrowed from Kent Hughes again. It was Sunday morning, he said, and all the ducks dutifully came to church, waddling through the doors and down the aisle into their pews where they comfortably squatted, just like some of you did today. When all were well settled and the hymns were sung, the duck minister waddled to his pulpit, opened the duck Bible and read, ducks, I wish I could talk like a duck. That would be really good for the story. (laughs) Ducks, you have wings and with wings, you can fly like eagles. You can soar into the sky. So ducks use your wings. It was a marvelous elevating duck scripture. And thus all the ducks quacked their ascent with a hearty amen. And then they plopped down from their pews and waddled all the way home. Some of you blondes not getting it or it's not funny. You can say amen to the truth all day long. But if your affirmation of the truth isn't ever accompanied by obedient action, your faith may not be real. In other words, if you have to fly to get saved, but you still waddle. (laughs) So you got two questions. Is my faith just an empty claim? Is my faith just a religious creed? But let's get to the heart of it. Is my faith leading to obedient living? So we've discovered your faith isn't real because of what you say. It's not real because of what you know. Your faith is real. It's valid. It's authentic. Because it results 
in obedient action. James uses two Old Testament characters um, to illustrate how this looks. And listen, these two examples he's going to use, they couldn't be more different from each other. One is Abraham, the patriarch. One is Rahab, the prostitute. One was a Jew, one was a Gentile. One uh, was called a friend of God. One belonged to the enemies of God. One was a man, one was a woman, which was a big deal in this day. But what they had in common was that their faith in God led to an obedient life. They both had good works for God that followed their stated belief in God. Which proved that their faith wasn't an empty claim. It wasn't just a religious creed. They had more than that. So let's consider Abraham. To understand James most clearly, I want to study his example of Abraham backwards. So I want to start in verse 23, then go back to verse 21. Now you got to study with me. Verse 23 says this. And the scripture was fulfilled which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. If you know your Old Testament, you know this happened in Genesis chapter 15. Abraham placed his faith in God. And because of his faith in that moment, he was made right with God. That's what happens at salvation. When we place our faith in Christ alone, we are made right with God. And by the way, you can't be with God for all eternity unless you've first been made right with God. And you cannot make yourself right with God. Not by what you say, not by what you know, not by coming to church. You can't do any of that. You cannot make yourself right with God. You have to place your faith in what Christ did to make you right with God. That's what Abraham did. Of course, he looked forward to the cross. We look back to the cross. Now go back up to verse 21. Here's where it gets a little confusing. Was not Abraham our father justified by works? We had offered Isaac, his son, upon the altar. So now James is talking about something that happened in Genesis 22. Abraham was made right with God in Genesis 15. But now in Genesis 22, it's 40 years later. And he's been asked to offer his only son Isaac on an altar. And he did that. But James says in verse 21, was not Abraham justified by what he did 40 years after he was, quote, saved? So so is James saying that Abraham wasn't truly made right with God until he performed the good work of sacrificing Isaac on the altar? Well, the answer is no. Other portions of scripture teach us that justification is not progressive. It's instantaneous. Meaning you are made right with God the moment you place your faith in Christ to save you. I love that truth. Because if I didn't have that assurance, I wouldn't know like at what point am I actually saved. Right? The key to understanding what James is getting at here is to understand what he meant by the word justified in verse 21. We generally take our definition for the word justified by reading the Apostle Paul's writing in Romans particularly where the word means declared righteous before God. However, what James means by the word is different than what the Apostle Paul meant by his word. James uses justified here as a term to describe the quality of something. So in this verse, he's describing the quality of Abraham's righteousness. 
Here's what James is teaching us. He's saying that we have no reason to believe that Abraham's faith in God was real if he hadn't done anything to demonstrate that his faith in God was real. We couldn't justify that Abraham was truly a saved man unless we were able to see that he was an obedient man. Does this make sense? The point for us is clear. We have good reason to ask. If our faith is really legitimate, if if it has had no sign of leading to obedience in our life, we would have to question Abraham's faith if there wasn't a Genesis 22. If there wasn't fruits of obedience that we could see in his life, then in our minds we would have a hard time justifying, did he really believe in God? It didn't change his life. Okay, he gives the next example in verse 25. Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and had spent them out, spent them out another way? Same truth, different example. Rahab, this is recorded in Joshua 2. The nation of Israel was on this conquest to get to the promised land, but they had to go through Jericho first. So Joshua sent some men to spy out the place so that they could form a strategy in how to advance through this place. When the spies got to Jericho, they knocked on Rahab's door because they wanted to hide out there. Their thinking was probably the fact that the king of Jericho would never suspect Israelite spies to hide at a prostitute's house. It's not the first place he'd go looking. But somehow he heard about it. And the king sent men to Rahab's house to get the spies. Now you would think that Rahab, being a Gentile woman, would gladly hand the Jewish men over to the king. But what we read is that God had already been working on Rahab's heart for a long time before these men ever showed up at her door. In fact, you read Joshua 2, she told the spies, I've heard how God parted the Red Sea for you to get here. I heard how God has done all these powerful miracles for you. And I want you to know, I have placed my faith in your God. He is the one true God. But how would we know she's telling the truth? How would those spies not scratch their head and say, yeah, right. You're living in a prostitute, prostitute's house. You're telling, how would we know? Well, the same way we know Abraham's faith was real. Because the story says that she was willing to hide the Israelite spies so that they wouldn't get caught. She was willing to keep where they were hiding secret and help them to escape safely so that they could get back to God's people. Just like Abraham was willing to sacrifice Isaac's life, Rahab was willing to sacrifice her own life. And that is proof enough to tell us that yes, she did believe in the one true God. If she didn't believe in the one true God, there's no way she would do that kind, make that kind of risk for God's people, especially as a Gentile. Here's the truth. If Abraham's faith wasn't real unless it led to obedience, and if Rahab's faith wasn't real unless it led to obedience, here's what James is telling us. Your faith and my faith isn't real unless it results in obedient living. That doesn't mean we have to be perfect. If you're like me, you sinned before you ever showed up to church today. Abraham and Rahab weren't exactly perfect in how they expressed their faith all the time. But you know what it does mean? It means that at some point we can trace some sort of spiritual progress in our life. 
Everybody's on a different journey, by the way. And sanctification, the act of growing more into the image of Jesus Christ, before we get to heaven, this act of sanctification, it's progressive. It takes time. Some people grow really fast and some people tend to grow slower. Some people take two steps forward and then one step back. People take one step forward and then ten steps back. We all have this different journey and we cooperate with the Holy Spirit at different levels of obedience. So here's the question. Has there ever been a step forward? Has there ever been spiritual fruit in your life that you didn't have to force and you didn't have to manufacture and it wasn't inauthentic to impress those around you and it wasn't just something you did on Sunday? But was there legitimate spiritual fruit that was born out of your life as a result of a living faith on the inside? See, the test of an authentic faith It's not the profession of your faith. It's the expression of your faith. It's not just your affirmation of the truth, but your obedience to the truth. So I'll say it again as I close today. True salvation leads to obedient living. If the Bible has told you to fly all these years and you've done nothing but waddle, well, You might not be saved. If the Christian life is one big game to you. And Sundays are more about checking off a box because, well, that's what good people in the United States of America do. They go to church on Sundays. Then you might have a light faith. Which could very possibly be a dead faith. Again, I I don't want to confuse anyone about their relationship with Christ today. I don't want to do that in an unnecessary way. but, But I also don't want to take for granted that everybody, and this is a pretty big crowd today. So I don't want to take for granted that everybody under the sound of my voice today is truly in a relationship with Jesus. So what I'm trying to do is exactly what I feel James was trying to do. I'm trying to appeal to those in here who claim to have faith in God, but whose faith has never impacted the way they live. If that's you today, can I ask you to do something? Would you take time right now to evaluate your faith in a very serious and honest way before you leave this place? But let me warn you of a tendency you might have. You might have this tendency, man, you're thinking, man, I... I've got to shape up. i got to start obeying God. I've got to start coming to church more. I've got to be a better spouse. and I've got to give more. And I've got to add these good works to my life or else the preacher says my faith's dead. I won't make it to heaven. That's not the right way to respond to this message. That would be like me planting an apple tree in my backyard and going and checking on it a few weeks later and realizing that it appears to be dead. And once I evaluated the apple tree and found that it was indeed dead, I go back into my house, grab a roll of duct tape and a couple of apples. And I duct tape apples on the dead branches. And I go in and tell Jenny, go look at my apple tree. 
it's alive and growing. It's not an apple tree. That's manufactured fruit to make me feel like I have an apple tree. And so if the Holy Spirit through the word of God reveals to you your faith is dead. You don't go grab spiritual duct tape. And say what can I do to make it come alive. Jesus has already done it. He did it on a cross. You don't get saved by becoming better. You get saved then miraculously, God makes you better. So I don't want you to get it flip-flop today. I don't want you to feel this pressure in your life. Oh man, I got to run out and become a Christian now. No, you don't become a Christian. You get saved by acknowledging that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man can come to the Father except by Him. You realize that you have sin and your sin has offended the Father for all of sin and come short of the glory of God. You can never make it to heaven because you're a sinner and I'm a sinner. When you admit that that sin has made you spiritually dead and that you admit your helplessness to be quickened and made alive and then you believe that Jesus died on the cross as that bridge from you to the Father And you repent of your sin and you you repent of thinking that you can get to heaven. And you repent of duct taping those apples on your life, so to speak. And you turn completely to Jesus and you throw all of your life on him and say, I want you to be the Lord of my life. I'm trusting you to forgive my sin. I'm trusting you to make me right with God. I'm trusting you to take me to heaven. God, I'm done doing it my own way. When you do that, now you have life. Now you can start seeing fruit. Now you can see obedience that doesn't have to be manufactured on the weekend when the Lord's day comes. You don't have to go home and feel like you've got to fill out this little task sheet that God has for you. So you pass, get a grade that he's happy with. Oh, you just throw your life on him. You let his gospel, his good news, his word, his saving faith be planted in you and you trust him for salvation. Now, I know that not everybody in here is lost. In fact, the majority of you, I bet you are in a relationship, a real living relationship with Jesus. And so I bet you this text has at least in some way provoked you to think, I need to be more obedient. And if you're thinking that, you're probably right. Not so that you could earn favor with God or so that you could stay in favor with God or that so you don't lose your salvation. But now you know you're in one of those seasons where you're not taking a step forward. You're taking two steps back. And the Holy Spirit brought you here to give you a shove in the back and to say, stop. Stop retreating from what you know is right. Stop that habit. Stop that way of thinking. Stop that behavior. And you know you're saved. You know there's been progress in your life. You can see that, that, that good works for Christ has followed your, your faith in Christ. You know that beyond a shadow of a doubt today. But the Holy Spirit's telling you in some areas in which you need to stop disobeying. And become an obedient Christian so that there could be even more fruit and good works coming out of your life. If that's you, I would invite you to respond to God. Not by getting saved, but by saying, God... Put me back in sweet fellowship with you. And light me on fire again for you. Make 
make your word and your house and my relationship with you, can you help me make that a priority again? Because God, I'm retreating right now. And I know I'm saved, but I'm not acting like it. So give me that help and give me that strength. If you agree with the Bible today, say amen. Would you stand to your feet quietly?